Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer incentive offers. 15,178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE and Summit 4xE models and dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark. Strangers, I am so excited to announce a brand new project. I've had so much fun making Strange and Unexplained with the Obsessed Network. Turns out, I love podcasting. I love it so much, I've started a brand new podcast and a new podcasting network with my fellow Obsessed Network host, Pulitzer Prize winner Amber Hunt, and Pulitzer Prize and Emmy-winning journalist Amanda Rossman. Our network is called Grab Bag Collab, and we're trying something different. Along with Amber and Amanda's new true crime podcast, The Catalyst, we'll be offering my brand new show, Dear Daisy, a podcast about secrets, exclusively on Patreon. For just $5 a month, you get both shows. Each comes out every other week. Plus, we'll be adding new shows as we go. There are a few tiers that offer different perks, but we like to think the main perk is knowing you're supporting something totally new and innovative. Where we create a community that gets exclusive exclusive access to a variety of shows created by like-hearted people. Plus, we aim to host shows that might have trouble getting hosted at big-name networks. It's like putting up a play in the barn, all hands on deck, except really all you have to do if you want is simply chip in five bucks or a little more a month and you'll be getting content and helping us live our mission. Check out my new podcast, Dear Daisy, a podcast about secrets, and Amber Hunt's new podcast, The Catalyst, at patreon.com slash Grab, bag, collab. Is any place safe? Is anyone safe? When a child guarded by life in a wholesome, all-American community disappears, is this proof that evil can befall anyone at any time? And what of American communities that are less protected by privilege? Who is keeping their children safe? Any of us can imagine the devastation the loss of a child would bring. But what about how that devastation might fester and grow into distrust of everything we once thought we knew? Welcome to Strange and Unexplained with me, Daisy Egan. I'm a writer and an actor who would likely lose my mind if my son ever went missing. I would probably travel the whole wide world and knock on every single door. I would never rest, which, as you all know, is a pretty big statement for me to make. Lord knows I'm sure I would cling to even the tiniest bit of anything if there was even a glimmer of a chance that it could help me find him. This is a feeling I'm sure the family of Johnny Gosh is familiar with. In the 30-plus and counting year search for her son, Johnny, Noreen Gosh has found herself down some pretty twisty roads and towards some pretty terrifying conspiracy theories found on one of the darkest recesses of the internet, otherwise known as Facebook. But to begin our story, let's rewind the timeline to the days long before Facebook, a wondrous time known as the early 1980s. 
In the fall of 1982, John and Noreen Gosh and their children, including their 12-year-old son, Johnny, lived in a quiet, clean, picturesque suburban neighborhood in West Des Moines, Iowa. West Des Moines sounds like the kind of middle America town that every John Hughes movie was set in. In 1982, Johnny was just starting seventh grade and he had a weekend job delivering papers. He was a responsible and thoughtful kind of kid. He'd already earned and saved up enough money to buy a mountain bike. He spoke out in school against drug use, on what authority or experience, who knows, and his dad described him as the kind of person who would spend time and effort for a friend's birthday to make them feel celebrated. Johnny's Sunday morning paper route required him to be up and out before the sun. At the time, Johnny was already 5'7 and 140 pounds, but Noreen was, understandably, wary of letting 12-year-old Johnny go out into the empty neighborhood in the dark alone, so his dad John and their little wiener dog Gretchen would usually accompany him. Johnny, like any 12-year-old, though, wanted independence and would beg his dad to let him go alone, but his parents wouldn't relent. On the morning of September 5th, 1982, Johnny didn't wake his father up like he normally did. Instead, Johnny took his wagon and the dog and went out on his paper route alone. He picked up his papers at a local church, and then, according to some of the other paper boys, a man driving a blue Ford Fairmont stopped to ask directions. From here, there are a couple of slightly conflicting accounts. According to one 15-year-old paper boy, the man asking for directions had asked him first. The boy said he couldn't be sure if it was the same man who was talking to Johnny, but something tells me there wasn't more than one man in a car at 5 o'clock in the morning asking a bunch of kids for directions. You know, that would be one hell of a coincidence. The boy said that since Johnny's dog wasn't barking, he figured Johnny was safe, and he headed out for his own route. According to a man named John Rossi, who happened to be the only parent on the scene that morning, There happened to be a car on 42nd Street, and there was a guy in there, and he was talking to Johnny Gosh. Johnny said, hey, can you come over here and help this guy? And all of a sudden, the car just swirled. He made a U-turn took off. I thought it was kind of strange that he would do that. There are also accounts of another man, a second stranger, emerging from between two houses and following Johnny. Two other paper boys said they saw Johnny around this time and said hi before Johnny walked around the corner. Around this point, another local kid named PJ Smith, who was asleep in bed, said he was awoken by the sound of a car door slamming. He said he looked out his window and saw a two-toned silver and black Ford Fairmont drive away, running a stop sign. Whether the car was blue, like the paper boy said, or silver and black, no one really knows. Less than two hours later, by 7.45 a.m., 37 people on Johnny's paper route hadn't received their Sunday papers. According to a piece in the Des Moines Daily Register from the day after Johnny went missing, one of Johnny's customers called the Goshes to find out the status of the paper delivery. John Sr., thinking his son had overslept, went to check on Johnny and found he wasn't in his bed, and that Gretchen, the dog, had just returned home alone, which was, obviously, a really bad sign. However, according to a piece from People magazine from 1988, Gretchen didn't return home until later. 
And this may seem like a minor detail hardly worth mentioning, except that it is one of many details in this story that have changed over time. John Sr. immediately went out to search for Johnny in the neighborhood. When he found his red wagon filled with the undelivered papers sitting abandoned near the corner where Johnny was last seen, he knew something truly terrible had happened. He went home and called the police. It was 8.30 a.m. Noreen later said it took police 45 minutes to show up, and when they did, they asked her if her son had ever run away before, to which Noreen was basically like, the fuck? 25 to 30 officers were called in to search the area and were joined by dozens of friends and neighbors who searched into the afternoon. No physical evidence was found aside from Johnny's wagon, which held the nearly $30 worth of undelivered newspapers. Given that each paper a paperboy didn't deliver cost some 75 cents of their own money, everyone agreed that it would have been extraordinarily odd for Johnny to willingly abandon his paper route. The following day after Johnny disappeared, September 6, 1982, more than a thousand volunteers and police continued searching for him over thousands of acres. Once again, not a single trace was found. The 15-year-old boy who said he saw Johnny talking to a man in a blue car gave police a description and a police sketch artist drew up a likeness. Special Supervisor for the State Division of Criminal Investigation, Gene Meyer, told reporters they weren't confident enough in the likeness to release it to the public. If it wasn't accurate, they argued, it could just serve to confuse people. But according to the Des Moines Register, quote, West Des Moines Police Lieutenant Raymond Fiddler said the man in the drawing may have been only a drunk driver asking for directions, end quote. But like, okay... So what if that was the case? Don't you want to find that person? If he was the last person seen talking to Johnny, uh, hello? One officer was quoted saying, We'd just like to talk to the drivers since they were seen in the vicinity, and we're not calling the cars suspect vehicles. He said the drivers may have, quote, witnessed the boy's disappearance. Yeah, so why not release the sketch? Sigh. Tensions between the Goshes and police began to mount while investigators refused to label Johnny's disappearance as a kidnapping. In 2014, Noreen gave an interview for a documentary called Who Took Johnny? Behind the 30-Year Disappearance of an Iowa Paperboy. Altogether, we had five witnesses that each saw this crime that took place. And the cops stated again, has your son ever run away before? They were completely excluding the fact that we had witnesses. And in 1988, she told People magazine, The whole abduction sequence took no longer than 12 minutes. By the time the police arrived at our house, I had all the information from the other delivery boys, including a description of the car. But the police told me they would not run a motor vehicle check until Wednesday, 72 hours later. Instead, they asked whether Johnny was unhappy at home. We had all this evidence to support foul play, and they kept asking us questions as though Johnny had run away. Apparently, the law in Iowa at the time allowed law enforcement to wait 72 hours before declaring a child missing, which is completely baffling. Listen, even if child abduction wasn't common or whatever before the 80s, and most children disappeared on purpose, which I'm not saying was the case, I'm just saying even if that was the case, 
We're still talking about children. Who cares if they were taken or they ran away? Go find them. You're going to tell me that a 12-year-old gets to decide it's a good idea for them to run away and so we'll just let them do that? And I get that a lot of kids who do run away end up coming home, and so the time and energy devoted into searching for them feels wasted. But like, okay, waste the time then, you know? Because even if the kid did run away, maybe the difference between finding that kid and not finding that kid is putting the word out right away that they're missing and doing everything you can to find them. As far as I'm concerned, trying to brush off a kid's disappearance as just a runaway seems nonsensical. First of all, what if he didn't run away? What if someone did take him, as unlikely as you may think that might be? Wouldn't you feel better letting other parents know so that maybe they can keep a closer eye on their kids? Or at the very least, talk to them about how dangerous it actually is to run away? The 80s, man. You've worked hard for what you have. Your money, your assets, your 401k and home. Isn't it all worth protecting? Nearly one in four consumers have been a victim of identity theft. LifeLock Ultimate Plus helps protect your finances with up to $3 million in reimbursement. LifeLock alerts you to identity threats you might miss. And if your identity is stolen, your dedicated U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. Let LifeLock help protect what you've worked so hard for. Save 25% off your first year on LifeLock Ultimate Plus at LifeLock.com slash aware. Terms apply. On September 11th, 1982, six whole days after Johnny went missing, police announced a $33,000 reward for information leading to Johnny's whereabouts, but said they had no more information as to whether he had been taken or left of his own free will. And as far as Noreen Gosh was concerned, that was about all the police were willing to do. She felt as though they'd kind of shrugged and said, what can you do? She told the 2014 documentary Who Took Johnny, So I asked the police chief, when was the FBI going to be coming? And he said, well, uh, don't really think we need the FBI. We just really don't have a crime here. So Noreen was like, fuck this shit, and took matters into her own hands. She told the documentary, I had a choice. I either get up and start moving or go down in despair. With neither the FBI nor the local police showing what Noreen considered to be enough of a fight for her son, she told People magazine, We contacted the press and gave out pictures of Johnny. We hired an artist to sketch the man in the blue car. And we had a first run of 10,000 posters printed with Johnny's picture, which we mailed to the police, coroners, gas stations, and bus stations around the country. We knew that we had to be the ones to push the investigation. The Goshes also hired private investigators, made appearances on national TV shows like Phil Donahue, where they gave out their home phone number for any tips or leads, established a foundation that held fundraisers to help pay for the search efforts, and to help fund movements to get laws passed that better protected children from kidnapping. In a letter to the local media, Noreen criticized local law enforcement, accusing them of not bothering to get fingerprints or hair samples, something which their PI did immediately. And she alleged that more than half the people on Johnny's paper route had not been interviewed by police, another thing their PI did right away. Police responded to Noreen's tenacity by labeling her hysterical. Because of course they did. 
And also, she fucking was hysterical. If anyone has the right to be hysterical, it's the parent of a missing child. For the love of Jennifer Aniston. Though to be fair, the Goshes started to accuse police of bugging their phones and having them followed, which is a bit out there. Why the police would want to surveil the Goshes is beyond me. But in response to these claims, Chief of Police Orville Cooney told the Des Moines Register at the very beginning of 1983. I really don't give a damn what Noreen Gosh has to say. I really don't give a damn what she thinks. I'm interested in the boy and what we can do to find him. I'm kind of sick of her. We're trying to do a job. We've never let up, and we're working hard at it. Oh, are you sick of her, bro? Really? Three months after losing her son and you're sick of her? Like, I get that you're frustrated and all, but you know, her son is missing. And also, her tax dollars pay your salary. And so maybe just don't publicly say you don't give a damn what she has to say. Like, maybe just say that to your poker buddies, you know? Chief Orville Cooney eventually got run out of office over unrelated scandals. Along the way, the one thing Noreen never wavered from was her belief that Johnny was alive. She told People magazine, What kind of conditions was he living under? Might we recover him and find that he had been put through so much that he would never be able to have a normal life? Those kinds of things just haunted us. In addition to the endless speculation was the very real added stress of people using the Gosh's nationally televised home phone number to prank call them. Screaming, your son is dead, laughing at them, or describing horrific situations they claim Johnny was in. Not all the calls they received were pranks, though. They received hundreds of tips, including, according to the Des Moines Register in September 1983, quote, one man called to say he had a lead. When he didn't show up, police discovered he'd been admitted to Broadlawn's Medical Center for Psychiatric Care. In December, an unidentified youngster who turned up in a New Jersey hospital with amnesia looked like Gosh, but was another 12-year-old. In January, a truck driver called the family to say he had driven Gosh to Atlantic, Iowa. Police checked his story and said he was lying, giving the information because he felt sorry for the parents. In February, a tipster claiming to be psychic accused a traveling boot salesman from Nebraska of hiding Gosh in his recreation vehicle. Police searched it. One of the officers said they found one hell of a lot of boots, but nothing else. In March, Gosh reportedly was seen in an Arlington, Texas pizza parlor. In June, the body of an unidentified youngster was found near Waukegan. Both were false leads. In addition to attracting false leads, the FBI warned the Goshes that drawing too much attention to their son's disappearance could cause the abductors to panic, which could put Johnny in danger and that releasing too much information that only someone intimately involved in the case would know would make it harder to narrow down suspects. But Kenneth Wooden, a former investigative reporter, author, and founding president of Child Lures Prevention, an organization that works to prevent child abductions, had advised Noreen to keep Johnny's name and case in the public's mind as much as possible. Wooden told Noreen, Whatever you have to do to keep a story alive, do it. Because if you don't... Law enforcement will move on with their lives and go on their merry way. 
In her memoir written in 2000, Noreen recalls, He said, It might get rough. The public and press will doubt you, laugh at you, and try to discredit you because the truth you will bring out will be difficult to accept. Then he looked at me and said, Are you willing to fight for your son? I agreed to do whatever was necessary. For the record, Noreen's memoir is titled Why Johnny Can't Come Home, Kidnapped While Delivering Newspapers, Forced into Pornography, Prostitution, Mind Control, Espionage. So it's clear that by 2000, she was already pretty deep down the rabbit hole. There was no proof or even really evidence of pornography, prostitution, mind control, or espionage. In 1988, Noreen told People magazine that about six months after Johnny went missing, she became convinced he'd been trafficked for sex when her P.I. received information about an auction being held in Houston in which American boys between the ages of 10 and 14 were being sold to foreign buyers. Apparently, the detective sent someone into the auction with instructions to buy Johnny if he was there. He wasn't. Also, in the 2014 documentary, there's a lot of news footage that showed unobscured and unblurred photos of exploited children in underground magazines from the 80s. Again, completely insane. Also, also, let's all agree there's no such thing as child pornography, okay? Pornography relates to consensual images of legal-aged people. Pictures of children in sexual situations are exploitation and rape. Thank you. There was absolutely no hard evidence that Johnny had been trafficked, but according to a piece in the Little Village magazine, a publication covering stories in Iowa, Kenneth Wooden, quote, believed pedophiles were seeking to change the culture and were gaining influence through organizations like NAMBLA, end quote. And this, strangers, is where Noreen begins to slip down the rabbit hole of conspiracy theories. For those of you fortunate enough not to be familiar with the acronym NAMBLA, it stands for North American Man-Boy Love Association, and it is an extremely fringe organization that purported to support lowering the age of consent and making the practice of pedophilia legal and acceptable. I don't know too much about it because, ick, but I do know that in the 80s, it was used as a symbol by the Christian right of the depravity of homosexuality, even though most LGBTQ organizations denounced it and worked to put as much distance between themselves and NAMBLA as possible. Anyway. It was around this time in the late 80s that former FBI agent and satanic panic wingnut Ted Gunderson reached out to Noreen to conduct an investigation. So now you had a traumatized mother who was starting to believe her son had been trafficked for sex, paired up with a conspiracy theorist who had pushed the McMartin preschool satanic cult hullabaloo and believed an anti-Christian New World Order was trying to destroy America. This was not a great combo. Before Johnny Gosh went missing, the word pedophile was not commonly known. The idea that boys would be kidnapped and traded on the black market for sex was completely foreign. As the 1988 People magazine piece put it, quote, At the time Johnny was taken, nothing much was known about children being trafficked through the country for prostitution and pornography or about organized pedophile rings, end quote. 
For whatever reason, Noreen and her camp of people believed that just the very fact that people weren't aware of the word pedophile was somehow helping these pedophile rings operate. Ron Sampson, the former president of the Help Find Johnny Gosh Foundation, recalled being asked by the publisher of the Des Moines Register what pedophile meant, and he later told the 2014 documentary... And I said, that's the case right there. The fact that you don't know what the meaning of that word is. But was it really the case? Because nowadays we all know what pedophile means and people still believe these vast organized pedophile rings exist. Kids are indeed still being trafficked. So I'm pretty sure vocabulary was not the problem. It also bears mentioning that more than 90% of children who are sexually abused are abused by family or acquaintances. Or, you know, that's what they want us to believe. Also, in the 1988 People magazine interview, Noreen introduced all new details about the morning Johnny went missing, which, as far as I could tell, had never been mentioned before. For example, suddenly the man in the blue Ford Fairmont had been flashing his inside dome light as some kind of communication to someone else in the kidnapping. Where this information came from and why it had never been mentioned before by anyone other than Noreen is a mystery. Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com aware. Two years after Johnny vanished from his paper route, another paper boy in Des Moines, 14-year-old Eugene Wade Martin, went missing from his route on a Sunday morning after apparently talking to some unknown man. And two years after that, 13-year-old Des Moines resident Mark Allen vanished while walking to a friend's house. Noreen told the 2014 documentary, I believe all three of them met the same fate by the same trafficking network. Regardless of whether there was a vast underground sex trafficking conspiracy going on in Des Moines, there was some good that came out of these horrific disappearances. In 1984, Noreen helped get the Johnny Gosh bill passed, which mandated that police immediately get involved whenever a child goes missing, because, duh. Johnny's disappearance also helped lead to the creation of the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children, as well as to the Milk Carton Initiative. Local trucking companies also took up the cause by posting huge posters and information about the missing boys on their trucks, like moving billboards. And then, in July of 1985, about three years after Johnny disappeared, Noreen got a call from a grocery store in Sioux City, Iowa, saying they'd received a $1 bill in a sale that had a handwritten note on it. The note read, quote, I am alive, end quote, and was signed, Johnny Gosh. Noreen insisted the signature was her son's. At a press conference, she offered $400,000 for the safe return of her son. 
And while three handwriting experts verified that the handwriting was Johnny's, the experts were hired by the Goshes, and police said they had not been able to verify the same information. Also, I feel like it's worth mentioning that this was back when kids were still being taught handwriting, which included cursive, so it could be that any number of people would have had similar handwriting. Plus, the fact that the bill was not that far away in Iowa seems suspect. If Johnny was, in fact, being trafficked, don't you think they would have taken him away from his own home state? And then, in 1991, a 24-year-old man named Paul Bonacci, who was serving time in Lincoln, Nebraska, on three charges of sexually assaulting a child, came forward to confess that he had helped kidnap Johnny Gosh. His claims included that he himself had been a victim of a prostitution ring that sold children to high-profile clientele. Bonacci said that he and other victims were forced to help recruit and abduct other children by way of manipulation, forced drug use, and threats of violence. And look, it's not unheard of for victims of abuse to turn around and abuse others, whether they're being compelled to by their own abusers or not. Bonacci had been diagnosed with multiple personality disorder, which is now called dissociative identity disorder, and is often the result of severe trauma. He said he'd only remembered his involvement in Johnny's kidnapping after recovering memories from one of his 12 personalities. And while that's not really how the disorder works, it is common that people with dissociative identity disorder block out traumatic memories, hence the dissociation. Noreen actually met with Bonacci in prison, where he told her that he'd chloroformed Johnny and was actually the first person to sexually abuse Johnny, while a man named Emilio took pictures. But then he said they wanted kids like Johnny because they were virgins. So why he would have been allowed to sexually abuse Johnny is a little confusing. Unless the presumption is that they wanted boys who hadn't been sodomized and Bonacci didn't sodomize him... Either way, it's fucking awful. Noreen believed Bonacci in part because he didn't stand to gain anything from this confession. He wasn't doing it for any kind of deal. In fact, I would imagine it would put him in more trouble. But also, Bonacci apparently knew things about Johnny that hadn't been released to the public. For instance, that he had a scar on his tongue and one on his leg, and that he stammered when he was upset. But, once again, Noreen found herself at odds with police who didn't think Bonacci's story was credible because, get this, they interviewed his siblings, who said that on the morning that Johnny went missing, which was, remember, almost 10 years prior, Bonacci was in Omaha. Do you remember where your sibling was 10 years ago on a particular date? I sure don't. Plus, do you know how far Omaha is from Des Moines? two hours by car when you're driving the speed limit, which something tells me if you kidnapped a kid, you'd be driving pretty fast to get away, don't you think? Despite that, police were like, sounds good to me, and declared Bonacci's story untrue. The thing with this is that it really does seem like paper-thin police work, and who knows their reasoning for clearing Bonacci so easily, but for someone like Noreen and her associates, this kind of laissez-faire policing looks an awful lot like a cover-up. 
John Walsh and America's Most Wanted also thought police were too quick to write him off and decided to look into Bonacci's claims more closely. Also, as Walsh explained, it was another excuse to keep Johnny's name in the public's mind. Bonacci led the crew of America's Most Wanted to an abandoned house in Colorado that he said was used to house and hide the kids. He showed them a kind of carved-out crawl space where he claimed the kids would be held whenever anyone came to the house. In the 2014 documentary, you can see John Walsh exclaim that there are children's names carved into the wooden beams. And sure, it could have been a kind of safe house for sex traffickers. It also could have just been an abandoned house that kids used to hang out in, you know? And then, in 1999, Noreen Gosh testified in a civil case Bonacci brought against prominent banker Lawrence E. King Jr., one of the men he accused of abuse. Under oath, Noreen was asked if she had seen or heard from her son at all in the years since he went missing. And much to literally everyone's shock, including Johnny's father, from whom Noreen had been divorced since the mid-90s, Noreen said that yes, in fact, Johnny showed up at her front door in the middle of the night in March of 1997. She said he was in disguise with darker hair and darker skin. He said he'd escaped from a pedophile ring where not only had he been tortured and abused, but had been made to commit crimes as collateral. He said he couldn't re-enter society as Johnny Gosh because they would have him killed or imprisoned and begged her not to tell anyone he had come to see her. According to Noreen, We talked about an hour or an hour and a half. He was with another man, but I have no idea who the person was. Johnny would look over to the other person for approval to speak. So why couldn't he re-enter society under a new name? Or why not join witness protection? But of course, if, as Noreen believes, it is all some kind of major conspiracy that goes all the way to the top, who's to know who's in on it and who's not? The public had a hard time understanding why Noreen had never come forward with this information before the civil trial, but she simply said Johnny asked her not to and said if she did, it would put all their lives in danger. I don't know. Couldn't she have called in an anonymous tip? Described the car he'd come in? Maybe get the license plate number? Something? For someone who was so vocal about any possible clue about her son's whereabouts, it doesn't make a ton of sense why she kept this to herself for two years. And not for nothing, but she had firmly bought into the pedophilia ring conspiracy, and wouldn't a story like this help push that agenda? I'm just saying. Then, in 2006, some disturbing photos of young boys bound and gagged on a bed appeared on Noreen's doorstep. Noreen was convinced that one of the boys was Johnny and said it must have been taken hours or days after he was taken. But, once again, she found herself at odds with investigators who were certain Johnny was not in the photos. More importantly, one of the investigators said he had actually come across those photos back in 1979, identified the boys, and closed the case when the boys said they posed for the photos voluntarily and the person who took them never touched them inappropriately. As for why a couple of tween boys would voluntarily pose for photos like that, the investigator said 
he couldn't remember. Seems like something one might never forget, but what do I know? But if the photos weren't of Johnny, why in the world would someone leave them on Noreen's doorstep, especially if those particular boys were found not to be a part of any vast conspiracy of pedophilia rings for the country's elite? As the years pass, Noreen has slipped further and further down the hole of conspiracy theories. The Facebook page official Johnny Gosh group is moderated by someone who blames, quote, liberal agitators, end quote, for the January 6th insurrection, and members of the group openly credit QAnon for waking them up. The official Johnny Gosh website got shut down because of how extremist it had become. Most troubling is that Noreen has become chummy with David Ick, whose name is a good descriptor for his personality, a British conspiracy theorist and all-around anti-Semite and racist who believes lizard people, which is just code for Jews, are really in charge. And when they're not busy raping and eating literally millions of children in non-existent basements of pizza parlors, they're spreading COVID, which, according to Ick, is also a hoax, by the way and cancer through cell phones and chemtrails. So, yeah, maybe do not listen to this fucking guy? Here's the thing. As I said in the MK Ultra mind control episode, I do believe it's possible that some children are trafficked for the purposes of sex for some extremely powerful people. If there's one thing politicians anywhere on the spectrum haven't proven themselves to be, it's trustworthy. And if my pal in Astoria, Queens, can make one phone call and get an eight ball of Coke delivered to them in under an hour, why wouldn't someone with way more power, influence, and connection be able to get literally anything they want delivered to them? The thing that gets lost in all the stranger danger and satanic panic hysteria is that the vast majority of kids who go missing are kids of color, and LGBTQIA kids, not wholesome corn-fed paper boys from the Midwest. But these scattered, tragic cases of white boys going missing came at just the right time for a certain sector of our population to use to bolster their beliefs that America was changing and becoming, quote, less safe, which as we know is often code for less white. And perhaps, as people became more aware of the concept of pedophilia, it was easier to sleep at night believing the threat was out there, where one had less control over their children's safety, rather than it being from inside the family. It's somehow easier to believe in a race of lizard people who lurk in the shadows and do unspeakable things to vulnerable people just for kicks, when the truth is... The call is coming from inside the house. Perhaps instead of searching for a race of lizard people who want to take over the world and also like to eat babies, we should be doing more to make sure that all kids, not just white suburban paper boys, are safe. Next time on Strange and Unexplained. Being a fan of a TV show is one thing. Thinking a TV show can predict the future is a whole other box of donuts. 
But some fans of The Simpsons believe that show has done just that. Not once or twice, but again and again. Strange and Unexplained is a production of the Obsessed Network and is produced by Natalie Grillo and Angela Palladino. This episode was written by me, Daisy Egan, researched by Jess McKillop, and edited by Eve Kerrigan. Our sound engineering and mixings by Jennifer Swatek. Our voice actors for this episode were Jordan Kai Burnett, Luther Creek, and Ryan Garcia. We have a lot of fascinating and bizarre stories to share with you this season, but if there's a story you'd like us to cover, whether it's a well-known case or something that happened in your town that the world hasn't heard about yet, go to our website, strangeandunexplainedpod.com, and fill out the contact form. If you like our show, please help us out by rating and reviewing us on Apple Podcasts. If you don't like our show, feel free to leave a terrible review at Apple Podcasts slash The Ben Shapiro Show. Follow us on Instagram and Twitter. We are at SNUPod. And check out the Strange and Unexplained Facebook group to join in the conversation. You've worked hard for what you have. Your money, your assets, your 401k, and home. Isn't it all worth protecting? Nearly one in four consumers have been a victim of identity theft. LifeLock Ultimate Plus helps protect your finances with up to $3 million in reimbursement. LifeLock alerts you to identity threats you might miss. And if your identity is stolen, your dedicated U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. Let LifeLock help protect what you've worked so hard for. Save 25% off your first year on LifeLock Ultimate Plus at LifeLock.com aware. Terms apply. Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer and set of offers. 15,178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE and Summit 4xE models and dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark. Don't you love an extra $100 in your pocket? Have a TurboTax expert file your taxes for you by March 31st to get $100 back instantly. Because no matter what moves you made last year, TurboTax makes them count. That means getting $100 back and 100% accurate taxes only from Intuit TurboTax. Must file by 331. Credit only applicable to federal filing fees with TurboTax full service. Offer can be modified or terminated at any time. Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com aware.